In Matthew chapter 26, we uh, didn't quite finish the chapter on Wednesday, and uh, we, we've been moseying through Matthew, and I need to pick up the pace. Um, if we're going to be on a 15-year pace through the Bible, um, I've got to pick it up. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tackle the rest of this chapter this morning, if you'd allow me, uh, as we would on a Wednesday night. If you've never been to a Wednesday night, this is kind of how we roll, uh, verse by verse, and just kind of uh, talk through the scriptures. And so uh, we're going to pick up where we left off uh, in Matthew 26. This chapter is uh, deep and rich, and you really could spend years uh, talking about all the things that are going on in this chapter. Um, but uh, I even kind of ran out of time. I should have really, if I was going to really tie it up better on Wednesday night, I would have done two more verses because it was sort of connected more to what was happening in the earlier part of the chapter. Of course, we, we left off in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was uh, being apprehended by the Roman soldiers and the high priest uh, and the high priest servants and that whole thing. Peter pulls out his sword and chops off Malchus, the high priest servant's ear. Uh, Jesus sticks it back on the side of his head, uh, heals that guy. Um, that's, that's in another gospel, not in Matthew as much. But, um, but what we saw is that um, Jesus would, would um, be, he knew, one of the themes I want us to remember here in Matthew 26 is he knew what was going on. He wasn't surprised by anything. Uh, he he seems to know every detail. He wasn't fighting or resisting arrest, or, but he was calling out, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet. Like he's saying, this is what, I, see, this is happening just like the Old Testament Bible said. And that's one of the things that I, I want us to note. Um, but we, uh, we saw, you know, after Peter, you know, put away his sword, Jesus said, don't you understand? I could, I could have called down 12 legions of angels. And, um, and then Peter, Jesus said, you know, in verse 54, but how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be? And, and that's kind of where we left off on Wednesday night. Um, and, and, and that's why Jesus is constantly saying, this is that scripture that was filled right now. He actually says that a couple times in the text, but he doesn't even talk about every time the scripture is being fulfilled in the story. Chapter 26 of Matthew might just be one of the most um, uh, detailed fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies. You can check box after box, and I'll show you some of those as we uh, finish up this chapter today. Um, and then Jesus... Um, uh, you know, this is kind of the end of the Garden of Gethsemane uh, scene here in verse 55, where we pick it up. It says in verse 55, <clears throat> and at that same hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, now the multitudes are the soldiers, the high priests, servants, they got their spears and their sticks, and they're there like, a, you know, kind of a lynching mob is, is the multitude that he's, that he's talking to here. He says, are you come out against a thief? Uh, as, as against the thief with swords and staves for to take me. I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Um, did you see Jesus, is he repeating himself? Uh, well, kind of. And when God repeats himself, you might wanna say, why is he repeating himself? Because that means it's more important. He just said the same thing in verse 54 to Peter. How then will the scripture be fulfilled? That it must be, verse 54, 56. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. What's being fulfilled right here? The fact that they're sneakily uh, at nighttime in the garden uh, apprehending Jesus and, they, and Jesus is calling them out. Why didn't you guys take me out when I was out in the public? Uh, I sat daily in front of you teaching in the temple. And, and he's, he's pointing out sort of their hypocrisy and their lack of integrity. Uh, he's just calling them out and saying, now you come to me with spears and sticks and stuff. Um, and he says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophets. And, and so you might say, well, what are, what are the prophets? Jot down Isaiah 53, one of the great messianic Psalms. We call it, or uh, prophecies. Uh, we call the messianic scriptures because it's about the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, in the Old Testament, messianic Psalms, messianic prophecies are about Jesus in the Old Testament before he's even born. But Isaiah 53 is one of the beautiful ones. Um, and verses seven through 10 kind of describes this, how he would be oppressed, he would be afflicted, yet he would not open his mouth. Many times during this trial scene that we're gonna see here, Jesus will remain silent uh, and he won't even defend himself. If anybody could have defended himself, it's Jesus. 
but oftentimes he chose not to. That's kind of interesting. But he's also, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, he'll be brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearer is dumb, so he will not open his mouth. He'll be taken in prison, judgment. Um, and, it, and that prophecy goes on and, and talks about the, d- the details of what's gonna happen, thus fulfilling prophecy. If you have a margin reference Bible, you know where they put the little scriptures uh, next to linked scriptures, <clears throat> um, you'll notice up there, Lamentations 4.20 is linked there because even in Lamentations, um, we see uh, you know, this kind of messianic prophecy where it says, the breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, that's Jesus, was taken in their pits of whom we sat under his shadow, we shall live among the heathen. Um, this is all <clears throat> part of that fulfilling of, uh, of the prophecies there of, of uh, them coming in like, a, like he's a thief with their sticks sneakily coming. <clears throat> and, um, and all that to say, uh, there's all kinds of scriptures we're gonna see. Uh, but then we see in verse 56, that last part, it says, and then all the disciples forsook him and fled. This is exactly what Jesus said at the beginning of this chapter. Remember, or middle of this chapter, Jesus said um, to the disciples, you guys are all gonna be offended by me this very night. And the word offended, we looked at that on Wednesday night. It's not, it's not like, oh, I'm so offended, like the way we use offended uh, too much today. Um, but the word offended, does anybody remember the Greek word for offended? Somebody said it. Scandalizo, where we get our word scandalized. Um, but it's not even scandal like we, we, we think of a scandal, but it's more like um, the idea of the word scandalizo in the Greek is that you were once kind of following someone, but then you're kind of feeling like, wow, what's going on? And you're confused or even uh, put off by something. It means um, you're, you're kind of like, the word here, Jesus is saying, <clears throat> you guys are gonna be scandalizo. You're gonna be uh, thinking, what am I doing? I just spent the last three years of my life serving you and now you're being hauled off to be killed. What in the world's going on? It's like they're doubting. Uh, if Jesus is really who he even claimed to be at this point. And that's why they all scatter. Um, and that's, that's why Jesus said that, tonight you're all gonna scatter. And that was, that was a near fulfillment right here uh, when it says, then all the disciples uh, forsook him and fled. Um, not just ran for their lives, but also uh, in their, they, they ran in their ideology, in their worldview even. Is, uh, that's what they're running from here, which is kind of interesting. Now, <clears throat> I love that the way that Jesus is going to the cross and, and it's not, that's why I keep harping on this thing where he wasn't angry, he wasn't kicking and screaming and dragging his heels as they were dragging him off to Caiaphas's house, but he was going willingly and he's calling out everything, saying, hey, this was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Um, and uh, and, and um, in fact, do you remember he even said uh, earlier in chapter 26, what was it, verse 31, he says, you'll all be offended, scandalizo of me this night, for it is written, again, fulfilling prophecy, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Even the disciples leaving and being scattered was fulfilling uh, scripture. Um, but I love how Jesus went so willingly and deliberately, intentionally. Uh, he, he'd been predicting this for weeks in front of the disciples. We're going to Jerusalem. They're gonna whip me and they're gonna beat me. They're gonna crucify me. And on the third day, I'll raise from the grave. Um, he's been predicting this. He knows what he's doing. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12. Of course, this whole section is an amazing scripture. Um, but particularly there in, in Hebrews 12, in the verse two there, where it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And then that word despising, I want you to take note of that, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Um, the word despising is probably an unfortunate translation here because in the old English, like 1611 King James, in 1611, the word despising didn't have the same connotation or denotation that it has right now. In fact, we, we say, I despise you. It means you hate something. Um, but the old word didn't quite mean that. It's become to mean that, I guess I should say. But the, um, the interesting word there is, is this Greek word used, uh, kataphaneo, which is a great word that means to think little or nothing of it. That's the idea. Not to be angry at it, despising the shame. Uh, that's, that, that's the wrong uh, idea. What, what it says here is there was a joy that set before Jesus. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? It was you. 
And it was me, the whole, you know, Christ went to the cross because he loved you so much that he was willing to endure the cross. And the idea here is katafreneo, the shame. He could think nothing of it. He thought nothing of the shame he was about to face. That's an amazing thing. Why? Because it's like when you have someone you do something kind for because you love them. Um, and they say, oh, thank you for doing that. And you say, oh, it was nothing. Uh, when we'd say, oh, it was nothing, it, it wasn't nothing, but it seemed like nothing to us because we loved the person we were helping out. Um, that's kind of what Jesus is saying. I am enduring the cross because there's a joy that was set before me. Um, how many of you have heard of a mother, you know, after childbirth, you know, us dads are like, honey, are we ever gonna have kids again? And there she is beaming saying, oh, it's the most wonderful thing as she's holding the newborn babe. It's like, wow, the memory of labor pains, uh, it, what, what can erase the, the amazing horror of labor pains? A beautiful baby that a mom loves. And that's why they'll go through it more than one time. I'm shocked at women doing that. That's amazing, I'm impressed. Um, but that's the thing, you're, you're willing to go through something, even if it's painful, because you know it's something great. And that's really what Jesus is doing when he goes to the cross. He says, there was a joy that sat before me and I'm thinking nothing of the shame that I was gonna face. And the reason I bring that out is he's about to face <clears throat> this, this shame. Um, you know, and, and what's more amazing about this whole story, by the way, is Jesus knowing all of our sins, knowing everything that we would do um, and all the sins that we would commit and yet he still went joyfully. And by the way, he was joyfully going even though he knew the sins of the disciples. He knew the sins of Peter. He already told Peter, you're gonna deny me three times before this night is even over. But Jesus still went willingly to the cross for Peter. Um, and I think that's important for you and me to understand that. While we were yet sinners, Romans 8, or probably 5, 8 says, we were, while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Um, this is one of those notions that I get emails when I say this because people just, they, they don't really do the logic behind this. But one thing I wanna tell you about God that I love about God is God cannot be disappointed. I'll tell you why God cannot be disappointed in you because disappointment means you didn't know what was gonna happen. Like you're surprised. Oh, I'm so disappointed. I had such high hopes for you. Um, and the thing is, you almost even have to say, does God have high hopes for us? He knows everything about you. He knows all your sins. He knows everything you've done. He knows everything you're, you're going to do. And yet he still loves you. So with God, it's, there's no surprises. Oh, Brett was, I had such high hopes for Brett, you know, and ooh, what a disappointment. That's not God. Now, <clears throat> don't get me wrong. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> God uh, still can be grieved by my behavior. Um, there's other things the Bible does say that it, it's not that I'm not arguing for us to just keep sinning because there's no disappointing God. That's not the idea. Instead, we should see our, our, um, that God is not disappointed and he loves us as great encouragement to try to live for him without fear um, that if we fail, we're sort of irredeemably doomed. Uh, that's not the way it is. I think that's the reason I bring this up all the time, that God doesn't get disappointed because I hear that from people all the time. Oh, I feel like I've been a disappointment to God. And I, I believe that's the accusation of Satan himself. Yes, our sin grieves the Lord, but um, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And that's, that's amazing. Now, um, here in this chapter, um, this idea, by the way, of despising, uh, you can jot that word down if you really want to uh, uh, write it down. I, I like these Greek words because it, just the, the, the scriptures are so colorful. Um, but I, I love this, that um, you know, um, Jesus is, is totally set and his mind is made up. He's uh, set his face like flint, the Bible says. But I want to point out as we finish up this chapter, some of the, the minds of the people in the story, um, how their minds were. And here in Matthew 26, there's, there's four characters that I'm going to point out before we're done and the, the way their mindset was. And the first guy that we're going to look at here now is the guy Caiaphas himself. Caiaphas, the high priest in Jerusalem. And his problem was he, he, he approaches Jesus with his mind already made up. Have you ever known people that approach religion or Christianity or when you share God or, or, the, or the, the saving work of the cross to, to them, they've already made up their mind. They're, they're not gonna change their mind. 
Um, and that's such a, a, a bad situation. Caiaphas had already make, made up his mind. Before we read the, uh, the next verse there in verse 57, back up to verse three and four, because it's been a few weeks since we were there, sorry to say. Um, but I wanna remind you of what's already happened with Caiaphas. Verse three, it says, then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. Um, this, this is, they've already made up their minds. They're gonna do this sort of goofy um, trial. Um, that This is just an appearance. Gonna try to make Jesus look guilty and uh, hide the video evidence. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't talk about that. Um, and, um, and not really let people see what really happened. Uh, that's, what, that's what Caiaphas is actually gonna do. Um, and, and, and they've already made up their minds. They're gonna kill this guy. They're gonna kill Jesus. That's Caiaphas. You say, but Brett, isn't Caiaphas supposed to be the high priest? Like he's a spiritual guy, right? Well, Caiaphas is, to, as, is like a religious leader as Prince Charles, is, or King Charles, is the head of the Church of England. Do you know what I'm saying? Is, is King Charles in England uh, a very strong religious figure leading the Church of England? That's his title, leader of the church. That's why I would never be a part of the Episcopal church or the church of England um, is because that's, they need to work on their leadership just a little bit. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. Caiaphas could care less about religion. He was a political puppet of the Romans. He was put in power by the Romans. If you recall, the Old Testament spelled out very clearly how, uh, you know, the high priest was to be, he's be a son of Aaron or a descendant of Aaron. And he would be um, put there by, uh, you know, very clear descriptions in the Old Testament of who the high priest should be. But the Romans said, no, nah, this guy's gonna be our high priest. Along with the second high priest of that time, by the way, Annas, which was his father-in-law. But that's a whole nother story. But the reason I go into this guy Caiaphas uh, is that's, that's the next big figure in the story here. Um, in fact, look at verse 56 of our text here. It says, and so it says, they, they that laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. We looked at Peter's behavior here last week. Peter's pitfalls and stuff as he's warming himself by the fire of the enemy. It's kind of a part of the story. But who is this Caiaphas and what's the deal? Um, well, I wanna show you um, some things about Caiaphas. Um, you know, uh, by the way, w one of the worst things that happens is when politicians try to be spiritual leaders and also, also, you know, also where spiritual leaders try to be political leaders. And sometimes those things don't work very well. Um, you know, and, and, and one thing I, I wanna say is um, we Christians, I think, sometimes become more political than we are spiritual. Um, Caiaphas is a good example of what not to do. Um, <clears throat> uh, here's a question for you. Uh, don't answer this out loud. This is just for kind of rhetorical purposes. Um, but is the election of 2024 per, is, is important? Uh, who becomes the next president of the United States? And, and how much time do you spend thinking about it? Okay, think about that for a second. And here's the second question. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ important? Um, okay, now you can answer. Which one's more important? The election of 2024 and all that stuff or the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel. But if I noticed from most Christian behavior today, people get fired up and talk about and all into it about the elections that's coming. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next two years of election nonsense. You know, like, now don't get me wrong. I, I'm, I think we should all vote and we should be a part of it and all that stuff, of course. But what is more important? You know, I feel like we've, we've left our senses. You know, we're more about making sure people know our politics than, we, than to know our savior. Um, I hope we're way, a hundred times more passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ than we are about the election that's coming up. How much do you spend time talking about one or the other? It's kind of a good giveaway. Watch out, you don't wanna be a Caiaphas who's all about politics. By the way, you know, Portland continues to be the joke of the nation. I don't know if you're seeing it on the news, but they're on Portland, Oregon, you know, oh boy, you know, here we go. And, um, and you know, if we wanna change Portland, uh, what's the best thing we can do? 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what changes people. Um, and it's not from angrily marching in the street that we're gonna see at Portland change uh, or even, even having a good election next time. Um, I think the best thing we can do is, is show people Jesus Christ. If we had a revival in Portland, um, my prayer is that people will get saved or leave Portland. Um, and that's happening, by the way. Have you noticed um, Portland, uh, the Portland area is that people are leaving by the droves and uh, the population of Portland is diminishing. Uh, we've had more people move away uh, in this last year than the last 30 years. Like it's an amazing thing. But I, I, I do pray that we won't just lose them as they're all moved to Billings. Um, or, or, or Bozeman or wherever, uh, or what. It's funny how they're gonna go, you could change these other places, but man, I'd rather see them changed here uh, and have lives here. You can't clean the fish before you catch the fish. And sometimes people try to clean up Portlanders without the gospel. Uh, you gotta catch them first, then you gotta clean them. Well, so all that to say, um, you, know, these, you know, these religious leaders have already made up their mind. They're gonna kill Jesus uh, but before we read this, I want to show you Caiaphas's house. Uh, a few years ago, Micah and I stayed in Israel a week longer, and uh, we wanted to get some Bible sites so you couldn't really bring a, a big tour group to as easily. Um, and we got in 47 Bible sites in a week. Uh, it, was, it was like from the rising of the sun till the time that it went down, we just go getting sites and it was so cool. Uh, but one of the sites that I was, I had low expectations because I, I hadn't heard much about it, but this was a, a place that I got to visit uh, that I was actually pleasantly surprised at how cool it was. It's actually what they call Caiaphas's house. It's there on the Southern uh, side of Jerusalem. And this is where they believe Jesus was taken. Uh, now this, this church that's built there that you're looking at there that we filmed, um, that was built in 1930. So say, whatever, I don't want to see a built, that's a modern church in, or, you know, in Jerusalem. But it's what's beneath the church that they built. They, they have, archeolo- oh, the poor Peter, he's got a rooster on top to uh, <laughs> signify Peter's failure there. Uh, cock-a-doodle-doo. Um, but uh, this, this church was built, these are stairs that lead up to the church. These are first century steps that Jesus walked up. This is one of the few places in Jerusalem you can say, yeah, um, Jesus probably walked right up that staircase. He was led to Caiaphas's house up that stairway. Um, these are some of the ancient ruins from you know, uh, 2,000 years ago where they led Jesus to what Caiaphas was in, a, it was in a palace. Now this is the church modern that was built, but it was in fact a palace where Caiaphas lived. He was sort of paid off by the Romans. Uh, he, if he kind of kept the peace, uh, things would go well and he got to live large. But underneath the palace were these caves and even a dungeon. There was a dungeon in Caiaphas's palace and many people believe that this is where they held Jesus. And that's where this gets kind of cool. As you drop down 30 or 40 feet under the, the uh, big temple there, you actually get to this ancient dungeon. And it's cool because there's this hole where they would lower the victim down into the dungeon. And that's, it's all, it looks uh, um, kind of like a cistern in some ways, hewn out, Jerusalem limestone, hewn out, and it drops down into this pit. And there's, this is the hole from the top where they would lower a person, of course they built the church over it, but they'd lower the person down into the dungeon and, uh, and then they would shackle them to the wall. And, and there, were, there was like a place where the chains would be connected, just like you see in like the movies. Here's one of the places where they would shackle the prisoner up against the wall. And it still sits there as it was 2,000 years ago. But this is from the dungeon perspective. They'd lower you through that hole, drop you in there, uh, chain you up. And then if they wanted to pull you out, they'd pull you out by a rope. And that's kind of how they did that. Uh, people think this is possibly where they, uh, they even had whipping posts here at this Caiaphas' house. And, um, and there's a little uh, Bible there that you can read the story of Matthew 26 uh, right there on that little podium there and you can kind of flip through it and read it. It's kind of, it's, I thought it was kind of a cool place to visit. I wanted you to get into the scene here because Caiaphas's palace, you know, he's got this dungeon and this is, this is just uh, kind of uh, sets you in the mood for what we're gonna see here. So it says there in verse 58, or pardon me, 59, Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet they found none. At the last came two false witnesses. What's, what's that all about? The idea is they're thinking, we gotta come up with some kind of story to make sure that we get the Romans to sign on because 
the, the, the Jews had lost their scepter of power for capital punishment by this time. And the reason I bring that up is for you Bible students, um, is that a significant thing? If you remember, I, I shouldn't be going into this because this wasn't planned. And anytime I do this, it makes you late. And then the next service gets all jammed up and it's all a big problem. So I'm gonna say this as quickly as I can. But um, there was a prophecy in Genesis uh, where it said the scepter of power would, would not be removed until the Messiah comes. Uh, and the scepter of power, the Jews looked at that as soon as they lost power or sovereignty uh, to govern themselves or be under the uh, oppression of some other nation, that's when they lose their sovereignty. Well, guess what? Uh, it was around AD 12, somewhere in there, when the Roman Empire said, you guys are under our iron fist officially. Like you can't, you can't have capital punishment. We alone can determine that. Um, and, and some people would say, well, well, then the Messiah never came. What was happening around AD 12? Jesus was a, a young boy sitting in Jerusalem confounding um, the priests. It's a great fulfillment of Bible prophecy. The timing was perfect. But that's why these guys, they had to come up with some sort of kangaroo court thing where they basically say, uh, you know, we gotta come up with something. But they, they had a bunch of liars laying around, but they, can all, they were like, what do we lie about? We can't think of anything. It's like when they were trying to get Daniel in the book of Daniel and they, let's find something to get, you know, put him in prison for, get rid of him. And they couldn't find anything. Same with Jesus, of course. Um, so they finally find two guys that, hey, we got something. Well, what do they have? Well, check this out. It says in verse 61, they said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Now, there's a couple things going on here. Did Jesus say something about destruction of the temple and raising it up in three days? He did, he did say that. This, these guys misquote and twist what he said. Did Jesus said, I will destroy the temple and in three days raise it up? Is that what he said? No. He did say, if you remember Matthew 23, the temple's gonna be destroyed. He didn't say that. He didn't say he would destroy it, but he said the temple will be destroyed. But when Jesus said that, uh, the, you know, uh, about the temple, he said, if you destroy this temple, and this he spake of his body, remember that? Um, I will raise it up in three days. And Paul, you know, says, what? Don't you know your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit? Like, this is something they should have known. He's, he's like shocked that they didn't get that. So Jesus made a claim similar, but this false witness and that's what false witnesses do is they take a bit of truth and then just kind of tweak it a little bit. People do that all the time with the Bible. I found people do that with me as I teach the Bible. But you said this. And I'm like, that's not what I said. Um, and they're, they're, I don't know, sometimes it's good and bad that we record these teachings and it's available for all. Sometimes I can say, just listen to that because I, I said it right and they got it wrong. Uh, but once in a while I got it wrong and they're right. So that's the troubling part. But anyway, these, these two witnesses, yeah, he said he destroyed, and Caiaphas turns to Jesus, what do you have to say for yourself? And, uh, and then uh, Jesus held his peace, verse 63. But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now this is the big question. Um, Jesus, did he claim to be the Christ, the Son of God? Hello? Yes, yes he did. Uh, let's just be real clear on that. And remember, Peter was commended. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you by my Father, which is in heaven. So we know that that's what he claimed. He affirmed that. Um, and, and I love Jesus's answer. And, and we lose a little bit in the King James on this or, or even some of the English translations. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, thou hast said, nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and the coming in the clouds of heaven and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then verse 65, the high priest ripped or rent his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said, he is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him. 
Others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? Oh boy. And so this begins. Um, now this is interesting because they twisted Jesus' words about the temple. Um, but then Caiaphas says, are you the Christ, the son of God? And, and this is where what Jesus said, we kind of lose its potency because of the way it's worded here. But when Jesus says, thou hast said, um, you, might, you might say, and it's the same way of saying, yes, you have said who I am. That's, that's like more original language. Yes, you have said who I am. Now, do you think that made Caiaphas uh, happy to have Jesus say it that way? Yeah, Caiaphas, you just said who I am. You, you got it correct. Uh, and then what else did he say? He said, nevertheless, I say to you. Now, you have to understand what he's about to say is gonna only pour gasoline on the fire. And Jesus is doing this purposefully, not just to be a troublemaker, but to say, you don't even know the half of it. <laughs> like you, you say, yeah, I'm, I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. I'm the son of man that's gonna be seated on the right hand of the father. Um, this is something, I've been saying this as we've been going through Matthew, but the son of man is one of the terms that's most powerful of, of Jesus in his titles. Um, uh, some of the linguistic scholars have pointed some of this stuff out, but uh, there's a guy, uh, Dr. B.B. Warfield, who uh, you can read his, his writings and commentaries and sermons. Plus he has a great mustache and a beard. But um, he was from Princeton, back when they were actually Christians at Princeton. And, um, and they believed things in the Bible uh, uh, back in the 1800s. But he said, he said this, and I, I think this is cool how he put this, he said, about what Jesus just said. This is the highest title the Lord has. This is the title the prophets used, Daniel and Ezekiel. It was an epithet of deity. He could have claimed no greater position than to have said he was the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Um, this was all encompassing saying, I am the, not only the son of God, I'm the son of man. That's God in the flesh. God becoming a man seated at the right hand of, uh, of the, um, you know, the hand of power, that's the father and coming in the clouds of heaven. Like there's no greater title that Jesus could have said. So Jesus is saying, you said it and you don't even have the half of it. Um, and this makes them furious. This is where Caiaphas strips his clothes. Like that's how uh, demonstrative they were. And they start punching him and beating him. Other scriptures tell us that they blindfolded him and punched him. Uh, you wouldn't see when the punch was coming. Um, and, uh, and, and this is again where we check box after box of prophecy about Jesus. Um, in the Old Testament, let me give you some of the high points. Um, Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. It says, for dogs have, this is about Jesus, this is a messianic psalm. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and feet. Um, as these religious leaders circled around him and punched him in the face. In fact, Isaiah uh, 50, verse six, another messianic prophecy, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. This is fulfilled right here uh, in Caiaphas's palace. Psalm um, 109 Verses two through five. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love, they are my adversaries. But I give myself unto prayer. They have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Jesus was doing everything he's doing here in chapter 26 of Matthew because he loves us so much. Um, but they hated him for his love. Isn't that something? I mean, this is, you know, offensive spitting, beating. Uh, they, they asked, you know, punched him, said, if you know, if you're really, you know, the, the, the Christ, who is it that hits you? Now, you should be really glad I was in Jesus. I wouldn't have lasted 10 seconds in this. Um, if they punched me and said, who hit you? I'd say, the one whose head is about to explode. That's the one. <laughs> All the atoms of his head, just a little pink mist over there and a body laying on the ground. Um, anybody else want to ask me any questions? I think that's the, probably the way I would handle that. Now, Jesus endured this because he had a joy in his heart that was set. He, he didn't think anything of the shame. That's something we've already talked about. So Caiaphas and his mob already had made up their minds about Jesus and they didn't even realize right under their noses, the son of the living God was right there with them. 
Some people are gonna miss Jesus right under their nose their whole life, but they're gonna already have their mind made up. Yeah, whatever, he was just a good teacher or a nice prophet, or he was some weird hippie in the old. Like there's people that have already made up their minds about who Jesus is, but they haven't really, like think of what would have happened if Caiaphas just for one second would have said, boy, he makes this pretty grandiose claim. Is there any possible way that he really could be the Messiah? If they'd looked into it for more than 10 seconds, I think they would have seen that they were wrong. But they were so set in their ways, they'd already had their minds made up. And so because of that, they missed the Messiah. God forbid, I hope nobody in here has already made up their mind or watching online saying, yeah, whatever, you Christians, a bunch of weirdos, loving Jesus who went to a cross and died. And you see kind of a surface uh, vision of Jesus, but you don't really know who he is. It does you well to, to do a little work on this. So Caiaphas, he, he, he approaches Jesus with his mind made up. The next character is Peter. And poor Peter, he can't make up his mind. Uh, one minute he's saying, I will never deny you. And now, well, we pick it up here in verse 69. It says, now Peter sat without in the palace and a damsel came unto him saying, thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. The word damsel here in the Greek is this word pariske, which is a young girl, um, child. Um, and the, the word pariske, there's, there's a couple things. It's around a seven-year-old child. Most scholars believe like seven elementary age child. Um, but also the word pariske implies slavery of all things. It's probably a little slave girl that walks up and says, hey, this is one of the disciples. And here's this big fisherman. So a little girl comes and sort of intimidates this big fisherman, Peter. And his first denying of Jesus comes in sort of this pathetic uh, little, this little girl coming saying, you know, I mean, it's, it's pathetic that Peter would be intimidated. Remember, I will die before I deny thee. No, a little seven-year-old girl's gonna come and freak out and you're gonna deny Jesus. Um, have you ever felt that way? You, you think you're so strong and then you fail in something so small and it makes you feel pretty bad, but it gets worse because Peter's gonna go through two more of these. In fact, we pick it up in verse 71. And when he was gone out into the porch of Caiaphas's house, another maid saw him and said unto them that were with, uh, with him there, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied with an oath. I do not know the man, I promise, you know. I don't know the man. Denial number two. But then it says, uh, again, verse 72, he denied, uh, pardon me, uh, verse 73, after a while came him unto him, they that stood by and, and said to Peter, surely thou art also one of them, for thy speech betrays you or bereath you. Then, began he to curse and swear, saying, I know not the man, blankety, blankety, blank. And immediately the cock crew. Uh, Cock-a-doodle-doo. Just like Jesus said, before the cock crows, uh, you're gonna deny me three times. And what happens now, verse 75 is really sad. Peter remembered the words of Jesus, which uh, said unto him, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Um, this is a sad, sad part of the story. In fact, Luke's gospel uh, tells us a, a, a piece of information. This is basically the same story in Luke's account, but there's one thing after the cock crows in Peter's, uh, pardon me, Luke's account, it says, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the cock crow, thou wilt deny me thrice. And then Peter went out and wept bitterly. Um, this is something because poor Peter is feeling about as low as it gets right now and, and he's out weeping bitterly and, and Jesus turns and looks. Do you ever wonder, you know, in a story like this, do you ever wonder how, how Jesus looked at Peter? Because, um, you know, a lot of people have a wrong view of Jesus, that God's mad at you or like I said earlier, disappointed in you. Do you think Jesus, like when I was younger, I think and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. I, I, I pictured it, maybe it looked like Peter says, I did not know him, blankety blank. And all of a sudden, cock a doodle do. And then Jesus and Peter catch eyes. What was Jesus doing? He was like, Like told you, loser. Like, or was like, was, was, was like Jesus really angry? Did like, it was just. <laughs> like, like what did Jesus do? No, if I know Jesus, 
One thing you know about Jesus, when you read about Jesus, one of the things you know is that he was always merciful and gracious to the one caught up in sin. The sinner who has fallen and repentant like Peter. You know, the Bible says the Lord is near to those that have a broken and contrite spirit. And you see Jesus being, you know, Jesus was really brutal on the religious leaders that were pious and sanctimonious, but the person who was broken, Jesus was just gentle and loving and the woman caught in adultery, he, he said, where are the accusers? I don't condemn you, go your way and sin no more. I think that was a very gracious, kind-hearted heart. And Jesus, people marveled at his gracious words, you know. Um, I'm pretty sure that wasn't a look of anger, but a, a look of love, if I could guess. And we can also see that because the way Jesus, next time Peter sees Jesus is gonna be on the shore of Galilee, um, cooking up some fish. And, and gonna talk to Jesus, and Jesus is gonna be loving, kind-hearted, and gracious to Peter. Um, the reason I point that out is a lot of us have failed, haven't we? Um, and, and yet the Lord still loves us, and he's not looking at you with anger in his eyes. Um, by the way, there's a funny thing here about the, the denial thing that I sort of skipped over, and that is um, when it said, uh, you know, verse 73, surely thou art also one of them for your speech bereath you or betrays you. Um, one thing I always crack up is Peter, he, the way he talked gave him away because people from Galilee, this is actually written up in extra biblical literature, that the people from Galilee were known as hicks. Uh, podunk hicks from Galilee. Um, and, and it's funny because, um, you know, our, uh, we have that sort of in America. Like if you're from the deep south and you're out shooting you know, alligators uh, with your 12 gauge in a canoe and you're like, get him, Peter, get him, tell you what, boo. You know, like we know that's, that guy's not from Oregon, right? Um, uh, they, they talk a little differently and they, you know, and, and we love our rednecks and stuff. That's great. But they, they give themselves away. As it turns out, that's the way the Jews in Jerusalem looked at the people from Galilee, it's a bunch of podunk hicks. Um, here's a freebie for you. You're not gonna learn this in other churches. Did you know that, um, this, this is funny, Arnold Schwarzenegger was so excited after the Terminator movie, um, they were gonna produce it in, in, in the German language, you know, um, even though, you know, he speaks German from his Austrian roots. Um, he was excited to do the voiceover of himself for the German translation. But the producer said, from, from Germany said, no, we're not gonna do that. And they hired this guy, Thomas Dannenbeek, to provide the German translators with overdubs of, of Schwarzenegger's voice. Why? Well, because as it turns out, this, as Americans, we wouldn't know this, but his accent is considered to be, as they said, very rural by German-Austrian standards. In other words, Arnold's got like a hick accent. <laughs> uh, this this kind of cracks me up because, you know, instead of, you know, I would be back, it's more like, uh, I'm coming back around here. Yeah, don't tell you what, darn, darn tootin'. You know, like, like, it just doesn't fit with the, uh, that's why they had some other guy with it, I guess. Um, I just thought that was funny. But anyway, uh, I digress. Um, we've, we've got Peter uh, whose voice, is, his speech gives him away and, and man, he's just vehemently denying. I never knew the man, you know? And, and now he's broken. Um, and uh, this is interesting because when you see this, um, you see Peter behaving in a way that is, um, is very similar to someone else. And I wanna point something out and that is, Judas Iscariot. Peter denied Jesus. Uh, Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter went out after doing that feeling horrible and wept bitterly. Judas went out and <clears throat> knew he'd blown it and wept bitterly. So far they're tracking. <clears throat> but where it goes different is Peter, <clears throat> well, he goes off fishing, but um, Judas goes off and hangs himself. What's the difference between those two guys? Um, I wanna suggest something that we, we looked at, and that is um, that Judas was the guy who um, was not repentant. Um, when the, when the, we're gonna see, uh, as we study this further, you know, Judas, it says he, he repented of the, of the deed that he had done, but the better word is regretted, but he didn't really repent. Um, and so he goes off and hangs himself. Remember we were talking last week about the difference between condemnation versus conviction? Well, Judas and Peter are the perfect example of that. There's therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Judas never really was in Christ. I believe Judas never really had a saving faith in Christ because we know where uh, the Satan came into Judas, 
to do what he did. Um, and, and Peter, well, he's gonna come back around. See, condemnation leads you to go further away from Christ. Conviction eventually brings you back to Christ. And this is where we're at in this story. Um, Peter, we're gonna see him later uh, preaching boldly and pointing to Jesus. He's gonna be the rock of the New Testament, speaking of, of Jesus and preaching. Like Peter comes back around, Judas, he hangs himself and his guts go out all over the like, ground. Like it's a horrible story. You say, well, Brett, what's your point here? Well, that's gonna, so we've talked about Caiaphas. <clears throat> he approached Jesus with his mind already made up. Peter, um, he can't make up his mind. He's Mr. Flip-Flopper in chapter 24. One minute I will never deny thee. And the next minute he's like, yeah, I never knew the man. Uh, that's Mr. Flip-Flop. But the next guy, well, since we're bringing it up, is Judas himself. He's also in this chapter, verses 14 through 16. Um, we read about Judas betraying. But one of the things I want to remind you is Judas is the guy with his mind that was made up by the devil. That's, that's like a worst case scenario. You say, well, Brent, I'm afraid. What happens if the devil makes up my mind? Well, if you're a Christian and if you accept Christ, that can't happen. Satan can try to intimidate you. He can yell at you, but he can't make your mind up. But how, did, how do we know this happened? Um, well, it says in John 13 too, and after su and supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Um, we know that this is what happened with Judas and, and you never wanna let yourself be open to the devil making up your mind. Um, if you're really old here uh, uh, the service, some of you guys might remember Flip Wilson. Does anybody remember Flip Wilson? Um, he could never get away with what he did in those days uh, today because people would misinterpret what he did. Um, <clears throat> but it was really kind of funny. He, he was this guy who would dress up like a woman <clears throat> um, uh, like I said, today it'd be a very different thing. But, um, but he would go around you know, talking in this funny voice. But one of his most famous lines he'd say is, the devil made me do it. Uh, and it was hilarious, uh, this guy Flip Wilson. Uh, that was his famous line, the devil made me do it. Uh, and he'd call it you know, honey and stuff, it was kind of funny. But, um, but you say, uh, what's that have to do? Well, well, Judas could actually say that. The devil really did put it in his heart to do what he did. And that's the person who's unsaved, who rejects the Lord. You're still open your life. You've opened your life to letting the devil have influence on your life. But if you're a Christian, where there's light, if light is in you, there can be no darkness. Um, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So, so that's the problem with Judas. He never really had Christ in him. So he goes down as the betrayer of Jesus. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, what we need to do is make sure the light switch is on by being a Christian. If you're not a Christian, if you've never accepted Jesus, um, what you need to do is make sure your, your attitude toward Jesus is that of receptivity and accepting him. To accept Jesus as your savior, to learn of him, to know him. Uh, Judas, by the way, um, became good at practicing sin. Uh, there's a difference between a person who practices sin versus uh, struggling with sin. There's a difference. The Christian struggles with sin, but the worldling gets better and better at sin. Um, what if you're a Christian and you're still practicing at getting better and better at sin? Uh, that's, that's one of the weirdest things. When you see that, I'm not even sure I can promise you that you're even saved at that point. Because remember the Bible says, you know, if you're a, a adulterer or a fornicator or murderer or uh, envious and you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And you're like, wow, <clears throat> that's bad. <clears throat> but the, the tense and the voice and the mood of that is whoever continually practices these things. It's like when you're practicing shooting your free throw shots. You're trying to get better and better at it, right? But uh, the thing is, if you're doing that with sin, you're in a really bad situation. Practicing sin? How can I get better at sin? Um, that's where Judas was at. Uh, by the way, 1 John <clears throat> 3, uh, 7 and 8 talks about that. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the idea of what are you practicing? Are you practicing at being better at righteousness, or are you practicing better at being a sinner? Um, well, that's the contrast. Peter's gonna, he, he fails, and we all fail, 
but he's not gonna practice. How can I get better at denying Jesus? Judas had been long strategizing of how he could betray Jesus and he made a deal, got a bunch of money for it. That's the difference. Peter kind of stumbles in sin, <clears throat> but Judas takes up sin. Now, before we move on to my next character and final character, we're almost done. Um, the, the one thing I also wanna say about Peter and this whole thing is um, Peter's out weeping bitterly. <clears throat> he kind of goes off and is depressed and goes fishing and all that stuff. But I love at the resurrection, the women come to the tomb and the angels are there and they say, go and tell the disciples he has risen. And it, there's something they tag on that I find is kind of touching. The angel says, and, and go tell Peter. Like go tell the disciples, but there's almost an emphasis, but make sure you get, Peter gets the message too. Um, why? I think Peter was a little bit on the outside at this point as a disciple and, and one that was not really, like his failure was, was dangerously putting him in a place where he was not looking for the risen Lord. But the angels say, go tell the disciples, but make sure and tell Peter. I love that, that he was emphasized there. But there's a final character. So, so in our character observation, we see Caiaphas with his mind already made up about Jesus. We see Peter who can't make up his mind. We see Judas with his mind made up by the devil. And finally, and this is the hero of the story other than Jesus. If you, if, if you get handing out awards, Jesus always gets number one. But who's the number two person in this chapter of chapter 26 that I admire? Well, I, I, I gotta say Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany is the one, <clears throat> she had a renewed mind. She was right. She was the one who knew stuff. Um, we talked about her, what was that, a couple weeks ago? Um, in 26 verses 13, uh, 6 through 13, <clears throat> we talked about um, uh, Mary of Bethany. And, 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 and how did she know? Remember, she knew what was going on. She knew that Jesus was gonna go die. She knew that he was gonna raise up from the grave. How did she know that? What was the one characteristic we know most about Mary of Bethany? She was always at the feet of Jesus. And, uh, and she was, what was she doing? Remember we studied that from John where John says she was at the feet of Jesus taking in his word. She would sit at the feet of Jesus taking in his word and then also worshiping at his feet. What an amazing woman Mary of Bethany was. And she had, uh, you, you might say her heart was open to Jesus, but it wasn't just open, I'm open. It's more like I'm open and I'm gonna press in and draw near and listen and worship. And as she did that, she's the one person who had a clue in the story. Um, she goes down with a blue ribbon to me. Um, how did she know she was at the feet of Jesus, hearing his word? And this is really what I would pray for all of us, to be like Mary, not like any of these other guys who uh, you know, kind of already made up their mind. Uh, they were, they were stuff and, uh, you know, stubborn and, and stuck in their way. Um, but uh, Peter was flip-flopping. Judas was letting the devil influence him. But it was Mary who had it dialed in. She's the example of what we need to be, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word, and worshiping at his feet. May the Lord give us ears to hear as we study this story. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful for the good news of the gospel. I pray that you'd soften all of our hearts, Lord, and that we'd be receptive about Jesus. Uh, for those here uh, who maybe are still wondering about Jesus, or those online watching uh, wondering about Jesus, Lord, I pray that like Mary of Bethany, that they would sit down at the feet of Jesus, hear his word, and let the word, we were told, Lord, by the word that faith, comes by hearing and hearing by your word. Lord, I pray that as we go through the Bible uh, together as a church family, that we would let the, the word do that, build up our faith. And Lord, for those that have yet to know you or believe or accept, I pray that you soften their heart, that they would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart, Jesus, that he raised up from the grave. Lord, bless these people with an ability to soften their hearts and to know you personally. So as we continue our study, Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to apply the word and the truth of the scripture in Jesus' name, amen.